I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Just this morning, I was looking over a list of authoritarian regimes in the world today. I was kind of shocked to see China ranked as the 29th most authoritarian. North Korea, no surprise here, was ranked number one. I don't really know what the criteria were for determining all of this, but let's get a little bit more specific about the flavor of authoritarianism in general. A few concepts here will be serviceable. Highly concentrated power. Centralized control. Political repression. The elimination of potential challengers. Organizations, political parties that mobilize to support the regime. A leadership that is self-appointed. How about political stability coming through control of the military? You get the basic idea of what's going on here. Well, who wouldn't get the idea? Because authoritarianism, well, it's been around for a very long time. It's a very old idea. We want to get a sense for just how old and how powerful it was in ancient Egypt with leaders who invented and fostered cults of personality using monuments and public ceremonies and all the trappings of wannabe gods. Professor Kara Cooney recently turned to the stories of five pharaohs to elucidate the pattern, basically, by which many people give up power to a few. What does that configuration do to a society? And what do these histories of the pharaohs possibly signal for the present and the future and not just along the Nile? Cooney has been with us before here on Constant Wonder. She's a professor of Egyptian art and architecture at UCLA. Her latest book titled The Good Kings, Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt and the Modern World. Kara Cooney, it's a pleasure to have you back. Thanks for having me on. You know, we're going to get to maybe three of the pharaohs that you treat more specifically uh, through your book. And I I thought we could dive in on this paradox that you touch on with Khufu, the idea that he's got this great pyramid in Giza. And at the same time, that monumental structure is uh, a sign of his strength, but it also plays out to making him kind of weak. Yeah, everyone looks at a pyramid as a sign of strength when really it can it can be seen as something that a king had to build to prove power, that that power had waned in some way, and now it needed to be proven again with something ultra-modern. It doesn't seem modern to us, but it did for the ancient Egyptians, something new. So it, it seems that the fourth dynasty... Sneferu, the first king of the fourth dynasty, and his son Khufu spent enormous amounts of time perfecting, going through all of the, the uh, f- figuring out how to build the first straight-sided pyramids. And it's, um, it's amazing that they were able to do it. We think of it as a, a sign of enormous strength, but it could actually be great vulnerability of the kingship itself. Well, you know, sometimes I hear discussions of this thing called presentism, the idea that we kind of impose our own modern values back on the past. And it's so hard. You can't do psychoanalysis with a dead pharaoh very well, and I realize that. But is there an argument maybe to be made that uh, there's something insecure, that you say vulnerability, that that they're compensating? Yeah, you know, this idea of presentism or this idea of imposing modern beliefs on the ancient world is something I, of course, with this book, hear all the time. And it's um, it, it's something that I will push back against and say that all history is, is looked at through modern presentist yeah. lenses. That's just the way it is. There is no purity. There is no emic view, to use an anthropological word, that, that describes, like, the original thought. So we, we have to take the, the kings at their word, but Khufu didn't write a lot down for us to figure out. He left us this this great big building. So that's what we're, we're working with. No, you can't get into his mind and his thought pattern, but what you can see is one king, Snefru, who built three pyramids, and then his son Khufu, who built the biggest, best one yet, and then after that, it's all downhill. So it seems that once they built it, it was they didn't need it anymore or by building it and that's the other thing i argue in the book they empowered their elite to such an extent that the elites wouldn't allow them to build at that size anymore ah well you know something that has me scratching my head is the idea that somehow a monument is going to convey some kind of visual rhetoric which is fancy schmancy way of saying it's going to impress people to believe what? Well, that you're powerful, that you're mighty, that you must be remembered. 
the effectiveness of this kind of a trick? Do you, do you think it was very effective? Do you think they actually were able to sway people, the, the, the common people of, of ancient Egypt, into believing what they wanted them to believe? I think it must have been enormously effective. And the reason I think that is because we still fall for it hook, line, and sinker. And what I mean by that is you can put on the History Channel and watch uh, ancient aliens and learn all about how aliens and superhuman Atlantean powers, whatever, pick your, your alien of the week, somehow built these structures. And if we look at these 50-story mountains of stone, the two of them by Khufu and Khafre, and assume superhumanity was responsible for them, then we're falling into that propagandistic trap exactly as the pharaohs wanted us to. So uh, if it works on us still, I think it did work on the ancient Egyptians. And, you know, someone said not long ago, well, not for the people who built it. You know, the people who were around during that 20-some-year time frame when those pyramids were being built. And I would even disagree with that because I think that they kept the engineering super secret. This was a weapon of the mind, and they made sure that that, that those blueprints, that, that mechanism for building that pyramid was, was so top secret that we still don't know exactly how those pyramids were built. And I can guarantee you that the engineers siloed this knowledge so that the guys dragging the stones and the people watching it just appear on the landscape higher and higher, they, they must have thought it was a miracle happening right before their eyes. I can't think of a better trick. To, to make people believe that their leaders are connected to the heavens. You know, your phrase, weapons of the mind, is reverberating, echoing in my head. And I'm wondering if monumental architecture, generally Egypt or anywhere else, or even in the present day, whether it's a, you know, a, the Washington Monument or St. Paul's Cathedral in London, I'm wondering if these structures are always going to be functioning kind of like weapons. I'll give you one example, and that would be one we all know very well, and it's Mount Rushmore, where you you blast the faces of presidents into the side of a mountain. And that may seem like a pious thing to do, but people um, need to remember that this mountain was sacred to the indigenous peoples who live there, and it was like an attack upon them, a, a scar to their uh, cultural ways to put these to gouge these leaders into that mountainside. But then for the colonists or the colonial powers that had come into the United States, for them it is a, a moment of, of um, imposing power very openly, very clearly. That mountain is rather hidden away. It's not like in, in the middle of Washington, D.C. or some other urban area, but it's something we can all close our eyes and, and see the outlines of. It's something that people make patriotic pilgrimages, if you like, to. It's... Um, it's something that we feel the need to do to show our power. And, and another example that I really like is if you go to Mexico City today and you go to their main cathedral, you will find that that Catholic cathedral was built on the very site of Templo Mayor, the major temple of the Aztecs. And that does not surprise me. It's a, it's a claim. It's, um, it's, a, it's a power grab. It's um, and, and all of these things are monumental. Templo Mayor was before, and the, the Catedral that's there in Mexico City is now. These are monumental, huge structures that, that are also weapons of the mind, and you then see which divinities we follow at a particular uh, space and time, which morality we follow at a particular space and time. One is superior to the other, according to the, the mechanism of putting a church on top of a temple. And uh, these are things that we don't often think about, but are all around us. So uh, play this little game with me, and I'm going to compare George Washington and this ancient pharaoh Khufu. Washington was not there when Rushmore was carved. And I'm just yeah. trying to imagine if he had been there. You know, he, this is a president who retired. He, didn't, he could have lived in that position for life, but he set aside the presidency. And that's kind of a humble gesture in a way. I can't imagine him looking at Mount Rushmore and saying, oh, that's a little overblown. And now I'm thinking about Khufu <laughs> and his pyramid. I'm wondering if, if there's any way to say just how into it a Khufu might have been, his own grandeur. Did he believe himself that important, do you suppose? It's, um, I, I love this question because the mythological humility of 
George Washington. <laughs> I cannot tell a lie, the cherry tree thing, right? Right. It's part of his ideology. That is why we laud him and divinize him. And I do believe we divinize him in our own way. Um, those things need to be there. The fact that he would never toot his own horn, so to speak, that he would never have wanted to be on Mount Rushmore makes it easier for the American mind to divinize him and then use him as a, a weapon of the mind. On the other hand, Khufu, now we, again, he didn't leave us any diaries or letters. Authoritarians never do. But we do have later texts that suggest that Khufu was remembered as a bit of a totalitarian um, hard man, because there's one text that talks about him wanting to practice magical tricks of cutting off and reattaching heads on human prisoners. And he's told, no, we can't do this. Let's use geese instead. And mollified. He goes, well, OK, fine. And, and there's another text <laughs> that talks about him prostituting out his daughter in exchange for blocks for his pyramid. Um, and and both of these stories are quite unsavory. And yet they they give us the idea that by building such a thing and wanting it ambitiously in one's own lifetime, as we assume happened with Khufu, it leaves a taint. It leaves a bad taste in the mouth for that authoritarian. And then it's no surprise that the administration after the Fourth Dynasty, and I use the, the American word administration purposefully, that they wanted to disassociate themselves from the Fourth Dynasty and say, oh, we would never act like the fourth dynasty did. Look at our pyramids are smaller. We're priest kings. We're building temples for all of our elites. We would never do these things. So there's a there's a constant wave of what is fashionable at the time, um, what is expected, what the king needs, and then what the long-term repercussions of those creations are and what the backlash might be against the king and, and how you have to then reinvent yourself after the fact. If I were to set aside the political manipulation, the cynical uh, uh, leading the people along to believe whatever you want them to believe, if you were just to take a pharaoh, it could be Khufu or any other pharaoh, and, and, and think about their worldview, their cosmology, the way they, th they think the universe really is, do you suppose any one of them was deluded into actually believing I am a god? I think they all were deluded into believing that they were a god. I was just watching a documentary about the Romanovs and the young son, I think it's Alexei, who had hemophilia. And when his father abdicated, he was shocked. He's like, but God chose me. You told me. God chose me. What does this mean? <laughs> so I, I have no doubt that most of these kings believed very fervently that they were chosen in some way, whether they were actually divine themselves and could live forever. No, but divine, the Egyptians carefully worked what it meant to be divine in a living human body that would not last forever. We have to remember that ideology, propaganda is not like some wacky conspiracy theory told to us by some evil genius who gets stupid people to believe. It's always the, the thing that we are most likely to believe the thing that will work best upon our minds at the time, the, the ideology that we hold firmly to. And I would use an example. Um, we, we believe ourselves to live in a, in a democratic republic, and many countries believe themselves to live in a democratic republic. But when you dig deep and you see the voter suppression, the gerrymandering, the, the way that one is represented, you might start to say, well, maybe we're not. And then you look at the Constitution and you see the three-fifths clause, and then you go, oh, wow, there wasn't a, dem a democratic republic for most people, but the ideology needed to be there. But if you went and walked up to any white American in, in 1790 and said, do you live in a democratic republic, they would have said, well, actually, it's later because you need your constitution later. Okay, mid-19th century, they would have said, absolutely, yes, I live in a democratic republic. And that is in and itself ideology. Are we being cynically deluded or do we always have ideology ruling over us? And, and I go for the latter. Yeah, and in a way, I kind of hear you saying that there's unconscious, mostly unconscious, kind of collusion between a leader and followers to, to make an ideology work. It's a feedback loop. We have to have it so that we can, as James Baldwin said, continue to, to protect our innocence, and I'm paraphrasing, so that we can, we can smash and grab and hoard the scarce resources and have power without having to think about 
whom we are inflicting that power upon, how it might be unequal, how we're benefiting more than they are. We, we need to think of ourselves as good. We need to think of our ruler as good. And that's the entire point of, of this book, The Good King, so that we can see ourselves in that positive light. And that's what most history is. It's a positivistic narrative. So at some point, religion goes really, really big and grand, and I think this happens under Akhenaten. Is that right? Akhenaten is one of the most extraordinary stories in the book. Um, For me, it was so much fun to write, and it's one of the most extraordinary histories from ancient Egypt. His reign was 17 years long, and he invented a, a new religious order and method that no one else had had hit upon before. And we still argue to this day whether or not this religion was quote-unquote monotheistic, whether it was the worship of one God truly. And it's it's an interesting question. It's something that Egyptologists continue to bat about and other theologians and other religious thinkers continue to discuss. Uh, but I and I go there, I do discuss it, whether the worship of the Aten sun disk is a kind of monotheism. Akhenaten outright says that it is, but then in practicalities, you could say, oh, but there's other divinities that are still included. How do we deal with that? No matter what and how you define it, you can say many things about Akhenaten's religion with certainty. And one is that it is a fanatical religion. It is a religion of you're either with us or against us. You either go along this road or you are not included. And it is also a religion of iconoclasm in which the idols of worship that were used before in Egyptian temples at Thebes or Memphis or Heliopolis, those idols were eschewed and not included in worship. And Akhenaten tells us very clearly that the only idol is the sun in the sky, visible to all during the day, felt on one's skin. And every temple that he built was open to that sky, such that the idol was always there, tracking through the temple, creating shadows within the temple. And it's... um, it's it's an extraordinary religion that, yes, only lasted less than 17 years because he didn't hit upon this religion and start to implement these religious changes until his first five years. But it's it had a, a staying power, even though the Egyptians immediately returned to their old ways, their polytheistic ways, they were intent upon... Uh, talking about the wounds that Akhenaten had created in their society. And it is even possible, I I argue, that this idea of one God and uh, uh, an eschewing of idols is something that lay dormant within North African and West Asian society until it pops up again in the Levant, Uh, in the 7th century, maybe even earlier, amongst a group of Yahweh priests who have many of the same ideas. And it's it's a very interesting uh, time and religious change to really do a deep dive into. Well, I'm no theologian, but it seems to me that monotheism always is going to be standing at odds with polytheism. I mean, this is just definitional. And polytheism is always going to have a, a beef with monotheism, no matter what you do. Yeah, but it's not that easy. So I grew up Roman Catholic, right? And we're told that we're monotheistic. And yet in this mystery cult of Christianity, we have the idea that there's a father, a son, and a Holy Spirit. And they're one, but they are three. And that's one confusing element that, of course, people died over when they were deciding how this was meant to work. But Also, as a Roman Catholic and as an Orthodox Christian, you have other elements that you can pray to. You can pray to St. Anthony. You can pray to the Virgin Mary. You can pray to all of these different pseudo-divinities. So in practice, there is a divinization and a pseudo-polytheism coming through within that mystery religion, if you like. So there's there's many ways that theologians can look at these these topics. And getting away from theology, I'm just thinking back again about North Korea. If you have a single ruler and he, that ruler wants no competition, you've got to start preaching the singularity of your, your status. Yes, you do. It's It's a hard line to walk, though, because if you go super hard 
and totalitarian, and you become like Vlad the Impaler or Kim Jong-un, in which fear is the only way that you can run your regime. That is a short-term solution that will have great effect, but long-term, it is holding a wolf by the ears and it will not be sustainable. And that's why the ancient Egyptians are so important for us, because they understood how to package this rule, how to work with one's elites, how to negotiate, how to reinvent oneself, and they were able to create a sustained and long-term authoritarian regime that lasted over 3,000 years. And that's why I think when we visit an exhibition or we go to Egypt as a tourist, we don't think first and foremost, oh, this is an authoritarian regime. We don't think of it that way. We're bowled over by the amazing monuments that were built, by the rich tradition of religion, by the fervent belief that the people are showing us in their monuments. Those are the things that, that really hit us first and foremost. It's not the authoritarianism that's banging us over the head. And that's the way that a sustainable re uh, religious political system is meant to be. And, and that's why I'm looking to the Egyptians for, for how they spun this so well. So there are sustainable authoritarian systems and unsustainable ones. Absolutely. Uh, and I think we can look at our, our world today and see which ones might be considered more sustainable and which ones are less. And, and authoritarianism happens along a gradient. So there can be, let, let me put it this way, you know, in the 1960s, when everyone was having a revolution, the, the authoritarian regime leaders all wore military uniforms to try to make themselves like the everyman whence they came. Now we're in a late stage capitalist um, populism and our authoritarian leaders present themselves as the everyman businessman wearing a suit and tie and wearing a military uniform would be quite passe. It would actually make people think, oh, you're an authoritarian. So today's authoritarians wear suits and ties and in almost every single case are democratically elected. In fact, the democracy is the key ideology to proving to their people that they're not an authoritarian, that this isn't what you, you think it is, it's something different, that we're voting for this. And that authoritarianism occurs along a gradient. So you can have some authoritarians, like um, the current regime in Egypt, where they show that 90-something percent voted for, for Sisi as their president. And there you get an idea, oh, okay, we're, we're seeing a, a more strict authoritarianism in connection with the military regime. But other places around the world, like the, the President Bolsonaro of Brazil, democratically elected, and then those emergency powers are taken on, and the populism increases, and other laws and executive orders are passed. And that's when authoritarianism becomes something that people didn't necessarily vote for. But the way I taught this in, in a, a class that I, that I recently presented at UCLA, today's authoritarianism uses democracy as its ideology, which is so very clever to get people to think that they have a choice, even though the, the regime is locking down that choice with every year that passes. I can't imagine any of these antics happening, though, in ancient Egypt. I, I, I imagine just sort of a, an absolute ruler with absolute control and, and no, even not even a nominal show of any kind of electoral process where the people get to decide. Well, you would be, you would be surprised. No, there's no elections. You're right. You were not having people decide who is going to be king next in any sort of a, an election where they go from village to village. But Egyptian elites have an had an enormous say. And the king had to work with those elites. And if he pushed too hard against those elites, well, he or she wouldn't last very long. So there is, there is a balance between the two. And any, well, the other thing that I talk about in the book, and this is where it gets really interesting and, and really hits the question that you've just asked me, is the, the leaders who become the most authoritative and really pull as much power to themselves as possible. In the short term, that is very effective. But in each and every case of the five leaders that I hit in this book, it is just the beginning of the end. Because to pull that much authority to themselves, unquestioned, in, uh, inviolable, uncontested, 
that will work for that king's reign. But as soon as that king's reign is over, it's the beginning of the end. And in each and every case, from Khufu to Samwasra III, to Akhenaten, to Ramses II, to Taharka, the five that I hit in the book, each is the top of the crest of a wave where the power is held in the fist of their hand, they seem as if it, that power would never leave. But as soon as they die and you move into the next reigns, that, that power is, is quickly cresting and, and moving away from that dynastic family. And, and that's why, as an Egyptologist, I like to look at power over the long term. That's the gift that Egypt gives us. We find ourselves in this 250-year democratic experiment. Well, the ancient Egyptians, they saw the ups and the downs. They wrote it down. We have their history to work with. And we have a, a better understanding of what a certain kind of rule will get you in the short term and what it will get you in the long term. Can you maybe in 90 seconds give me a little story from Nubia? <laughs> Taharka is the one I'm thinking of here. There are pyramids further south than Giza. There, there are many pyramids further south than Giza. And we're talking about modern day Sudan, uh, whence the 25th dynasty kings came from. These 25th dynasty kings took over Egypt in the 7th century, the 600s BCE. And they ruled Egypt imperially as imperial kings for about 100 years until they themselves were, were beaten back by the Assyrian imperialists coming from Northwest Asia. And these, these Nubian or Kushite kings, they were colonized themselves quite brutally by the ancient Egyptians over millennia who imposed their own language, their own culture, and their own colonialism onto this place in, in modern-day Sudan, um, ancient Nubia and ancient Kush. And it's an extraordinary thing to see a people who had much of their cultural ways imposed upon them, where their own state is created secondarily by another primary state. And to see them then develop and become stronger than the state uh, that, that had imposed themselves upon them. Well, Taharqa was this extraordinary leader who fought against Assyrians at the beginning of his reign and was victorious and was able to take over the whole of Egypt um, as a, a line of 25th dynasty Kushite kings. And if it weren't for the Assyrian Empire, Esarhaddon, Ashurbanipal, coming from West Asia, I think we would talk about these these Kushite kings as a, a long-term um, power source. As it was, they had to retreat after they were beaten by the Assyrians back down into Sudan. But their reign continued for hundreds of years into the Roman imperial times. And, and they were able to avoid being taken into Roman hegemony. This was a very, very powerful warlording set of dynasties. You got to have a cautionary tale in there, don't you? I mean, or more than one. Is the whole book cautionary? The whole book is not cautionary. The last chapter talks about how we have lived with this complex society, this rule by the fathers and rule by kings and authorities for about, I would say, less than 10,000 years. And when you're talking about human existence as homo sapiens sapiens, 100,000, 150,000 years, it's a very short amount of time for the whole of humanity. And I argue in the last chapter that we are seeing an end. I, I think we can all agree right and left that wherever we fall on the political spectrum, that a change is coming, that we're on the edge of a cliff. We don't know exactly what's there. And everyone is fighting about what to do. Some people are saying we need to go back to the, the rule of the fathers and the way things were. Other people are saying we need to step forward into something new and something different. We're, we're dealing with extraordinary unrest and unease. We're dealing with a pandemic. We're dealing with um, massive resignations as people opt out of the workforce. There is great turmoil right now. And the last chapter is really discussing how do we move away from this safety within our father's arms, as we're told this rule is, and move into something new, something different, in which certain ways of living in society are not imposed, but there is much more choice and there's much more uh, sustainability and uh, environmental sustainability in particular, less hoarding of resources and, and more shared resources amongst more people in society. You left yourself wide open for a sequel, didn't you? 
I suppose yes. There's there's much that I could I could do with this book. Yeah. Uh, there's there are a lot of uh, models from the past to to maybe uh, pattern ourselves after, but uh, maybe the brave new world doesn't have many of those models for us. We'll we'll wait. I'm going to wait and see. I'm going to stick around. Okay. I'm not falling off the yeah. cliff just yet. <laughs> no, we, we, this is good. the other thing a historian can tell you is that these big shifts, if we are indeed heading into another great revolution. They take generations, and I think we're we're at the beginnings of it, and I think we all feel it. So many of us feel it. It's a very interesting time to be alive, so let's you and me try to stay alive as long as possible <laughs> okay. and see what happens. Kara Cooney, a pleasure to visit with you. Thank you. Thank you. Professor Kara Cooney, a professor of Egyptian art and architecture at UCLA, and her latest book titled The Good King's Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt and the Modern World. So if you think you want to understand the dynamics or really the politics of an ancient civilization, it doesn't hurt to look at the archaeological evidence, you know. That's one way. That's one route to understanding. And in the spirit of trying to get that understanding about ancient Egypt, we're going to revisit the story of a female mummy known as Mernethetus. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. Here's part of a conversation I had with Jamie Fraser, who is curator for the Ancient Levant and Anatolia at the British Museum in London. We were talking about the discovery and significance of a mummy, the priestess Mernethetus. This coffin for this lady, Mernethetus, stylistically, the way the coffin looks, the way it's been been decorated, uh, the types of texts that are written on it, that dates to about 600 BC, give or take, a period called the 26th dynasty. And we know from the texts on that coffin that the lady, Menethetes, worked as a, a probably a priestess or a worshipper in the temple of Sekhmet, uh, probably around uh, a place called Sayets, near, uh, near Cairo, modern-day Cairo. But when we say priestess and or priest or things like that, it's somewhat different to how you would imagine a priest or a priest to be operating today, someone who's, you know, turns up to the church every day, takes holy vows, all that sort of thing. Back in ancient Egypt, you could be associated with these temples by virtue of being born into the right station. And Menethetes was probably a wealthy woman. We know this from the status of her coffin. And by virtue of being a wealthy woman, she probably had a position that served as priestess in the temple to Sekhmet. But that didn't mean that that's all she did. She would have lived at home. She would have raised a family. We know that she had at least one son because he's also named on her coffin. And she would have had a private life rubbing right up against that religious life as well. So it sounds to me like the story of her life is uh, something that has been gleaned most particularly from writings on this coffin or, or sarcophagus or whatever it is. Yeah, if we didn't have her sarcophagus or her coffin, uh, Egyptology 101, if it's made of wood, we tend to say coffin, and if it's made of stone, we say sarcophagus. So this coffin's made of cedar wood, cedar from Lebanon, so we should call it a coffin, although I slip into saying sarcophagus like everybody else. Uh, But this coffin is the only evidence we had that she ever existed, and I guess that's why she was buried in such a way, so that she would be remembered forever for the afterlife. But if she hadn't had this coffin we wouldn't know that she ever walked the face of this earth. So, you know, when you have so uh, little to go on, it's still kind of exciting, isn't it, to think she had a child, she had a function, she had money. Uh, Marcus, it's exhilarating because it's it's exactly like it's detective work. So we've got this one coffin uh, in, the, in a museum that I was working at back in Sydney in Australia, and... This coffin, the every color, every pigment, every decoration, the materiality of it, the types of wood that have been used, the way it's been shaped, the the texts that have been written onto it, the way the body's been treated, every one of those things represents a decision that's been made in the ancient past. And by activating those decisions, by working out why something looks like it does, we can learn a lot about Manitha Testin and about her life if we ask the right questions in the right way. And the first one, as you say, is that she had a lot of money because back in ancient Egypt, if you got mummified, automatically we can assume that you were pretty well off because the process of mummification was very long and very expensive. 
and you had to come from a very wealthy family or work for a very wealthy institution in order to be mummified. Now, what can be gleaned from a comparative kind of analysis where you're saying, well, this coffin is like others that have been found over the course of modern archaeology? So one of the big problems with studying things from ancient Egypt is that so many of them have been dug up and looted by tomb robbers, usually in the 19th or early 20th century, and that's how museums have come to have them in their collection. And this museum back in Sydney is no different. It it acquired this coffin by a donation made in 1850. So we don't know where that coffin is from. I mean, stylistically, okay, it's from Egypt, but is it from Alexandria or Cairo or Abydos or Thebes? Because we don't have the context, the place that an archaeologist dug it up, we've lost all this information. What was she buried with? Who was she buried with? What uh, images did her family choose to paint on her tomb's wall? We don't have any of that. But the coffin itself becomes our primary lens by which we can start to get back a lot of that information. And you're absolutely right by saying we have to compare it. So we compare the shape, the style, the colours, all the look of this coffin, the flavour, to coffins that we have excavated across the last couple of hundred years in Egypt. And from all of that, we can say pretty confidently, yeah, this coffin dates to the 26th dynasty, so about 600 BC, give or take. And it's almost certainly from this place called Sais near Cairo, um, which is a particular kind of place for this particular kind of coffin. And then we can start to narrow down her life from there. Now, the story that I kind of received, kind of the conventional wisdom, and I'm talking about going all the way back to elementary school, uh, is is the kind of the notion that you got this guy named Napoleon, and he starts going to Egypt, and then it becomes a fad, and everybody from Europe starts going to Egypt, and they're pilfering and looting and bringing stuff back, sometimes just um, because it's kind of cool, but also in the name of, of, of science, I guess. Yeah, well, I think your elementary school did you proud. Uh, that's absolutely kind of the the, the, the rough uh, guide to Egyptology and how it all begins. It really does kind of hit Western consciousness when Napoleon, you know, in the, the campaign in Egypt and the Battle of the Nile starts to bring back Egyptological stuff back to Europe. Egyptomania kicks off and, of course, you know, 100 years later there's discovery of Tutankhamun and, you know, all bets are off, everyone loves Egypt as we still do. But you are absolutely right because not everyone is just looting to find pretty stuff. There's a lot of people out there trying to ask questions about who these people were and very scientific questions for their time. One of those people, and this is the link to the coffin of this lady, Manithates, was a guy called Sir Charles Nicholson. And he's the guy that founded a museum at the University of Sydney uh, in 1850. And he decided to go out to Egypt and to start collecting objects, not because they looked nice, but because he was collecting an assemblage, a group of objects that could tell the whole story of Egyptian civilization. So he very carefully got different sorts of objects from different sites, from different periods, so that he could bring it back to Australia, donate it to this university, the University of Sydney, to start a museum but to start it as a teaching collection for students. It's one of the earliest university museums in the world. And we're very lucky that he did that because uh, if he hadn't, then the coffin of Menethites and her contents may never have survived. So I understand the year was 1856 when he makes his way to the Nile. And uh, can you kind of describe what we might suspect to have been kind of the marketplace for mummies? I I, I get the gist that, that mummies were... Uh, everywhere in Egypt. Yeah, and my apologies, I was getting my dates confused. He sets the university up in 1850 and then makes these donations in 1860. So in 1856-57, that's the time he's out in Egypt collecting everything. And you're right, there is mummy overload because the amount of tourists coming to Egypt doing what was called the Grand Tour, doing a sort of set itinerary. This is the time of Baedeker and early Thomas Cook travel programs. Everyone who can afford it from North America, from Europe, from Australia is out there and they all want to return with Egyptica. I mean, one French uh, clergyman remarked to the, the head of the Egyptian uh, government at the time, it would be remiss of him not to return to Egypt with a crocodile in one hand and a mummy in the other. 
Um, and we know from Charles Nicholson's account that as he is sailing down the Nile in his boat, collecting all the various uh, artifacts that he would eventually donate to the university, he's very careful in the mummies that he does select and the coffins that he selects because he is spoilt for choice. And he actually writes that at, w- at one point he went left for dinner when he returned after dinner to the, to the, to the boat, uh, some sellers had placed 20, 25 mummies all on the deck of the boat. He didn't want them all. He said, take them away, take them away. And they left a couple of the really bad ones that they didn't want, which he eventually had to just put on the shore and leave. So there are more mummies out there than tourists could know what to do with. Well, the reason I ask this question is because it seems to me that if there's going to be a coffin for this uh, priestess, Mernithetus, and if that coffin's going to make its way all the way from Egypt to Australia, and if Sir Charles Nicholson has a hand in this, doesn't matter if it's him or somebody else, uh, it just seems to me that with just this, you called it mummy overload, with all these mummies, mummies, mummies everywhere, that kind of explains how this particular coffin could be kind of set aside, not quite forgotten, but but never opened for 150 years. <laughs> well, this is the... The billion dollar question, isn't it? So we opened this coffin in 2016 and to our astonishment, and I'll never forget this, discovered that it had an array of contents inside, not a complete mummy, but a mummy that had been cut up by tomb robbers, ransacking it, looking for gold, for jewels, for amulets and finding them. But what they left behind was uh, the remains of a, of a human, of a person, of probably Menethetes herself. But imagine cutting up a mummy, then shaking a coffin up around like a, a cocktail shaker and all the bits and pieces all mixed up um, and a complete kind of melange of stuff. It was quite extraordinary. Um, but in, 18, uh, in 1870, give or take, the first catalogue of the Nicholson Museum was published and there was a line in that, where they said that the coffin of Menethetes was empty. And I think that phrase, was empty, becomes received wisdom, and there's no need to open it if it's empty. But, of course, was empty to somebody in the 1870s might mean empty of a complete mummy that's worthy of display rather than of a sort of a mixed assemblage of bits and pieces which may not be considered so important 100 years ago, but scientifically today are extremely important to know about. There was nothing of interest to them in Victorian times. Or they just got it wrong. We just don't know. Still to come, we want to hear in vivid detail what it was like to be there when the lid came off. And no better person than to talk with the guy who was there, Dr. Jamie Fraser with us. He's curator for the ancient Levant and Anatolia at the British Museum. I'm Marcus Smith. You're listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. It's an honor to have with us Dr. Jamie Fraser, curator for the ancient Levant and Anatolia at the British Museum in London. We're talking about that moment in 2016 when he, I think with a few others, opened this coffin that turned out to be, as we surmise, the coffin of Mernithetus, this ancient Egyptian priestess. Uh, Dr. Jamie Fraser did you dare touch anything? I mean, I, I don't know how you go about opening a coffin to begin with. I don't know if you're supposed to have light that, that enters in, if you're supposed to. I trust that by this time in your science, you know, you don't just rummage around stuff. You don't poke at it. <laughs> it was tempting, but no, we didn't. Uh, we opened it in a room down in the basement of this museum in the, the University of Sydney. And this room was had been used for years as an education room for school students. And this coffin of Menethetes in a Perspex case had sat in the back of the room for, well, I remember as a student at the University of Sydney studying with it just in the background. It was always there. Um, and the reason why we opened it really was because what I wanted to do was to jack this coffin up onto some scaffolding so that we could photograph the hieroglyphics on the underside because they'd never been photographed. Um, but to do that, we needed just to be sure that the coffin was actually empty, as this old catalogue said. And to do that, we needed to open the coffin. 
Uh, so we arranged to do it on one day when the schoolroom wasn't being used. And I was there and a couple of other museum staff, and particularly a, our collections management team. So a, a, a museum is usually split between the curators who do the research and the public engagement and the, the exhibitions and the collections management. And they're the guys who sort of look after the, the physical aspect of the objects, moving them, doing uh, conservation, that sort of thing. So we had two collection managers with us, uh, two ladies called Marie and Julie. And Marie and Julie uh, lifted the, the coffin on, out of the, the case and onto a table. And the lid of the coffin, well, the coffin normally kind of opens up from the middle. Um, but in antiquities, the, the wooden nails that fix the very front part of the coffin to the, the trough had been removed. So that meant that the, the lid of the coffin actually slid off, almost like a pencil box. And so very carefully, uh, Marie standing away and holding it steady and Julie at the other end, very carefully pulling the lid back, centimetre by centimetre, the lid slowly was pulled all the way back to reveal the inside of the contents. And we all leaned forward. And you could have heard a pin drop. It was astonishing because what we were expecting to see was an empty coffin. And instead, what we did see was this collection that I described before of bandages and bones all mixed around, all piled up on each other, almost to the, to the rim of the, the trough in, in parts of it, um, as well as sort of what, what looks like coal, lumps of black hardened substance. And that's a, a hardened sort of bituminous, resinous substance that would have got poured across the mummy when it was put into the coffin and then hardened as a preserving agent and the tomb robbers who had destroyed the mummy had cracked through it like cracking through the the, the crust on a creme brulee and then that all got mixed up into this as well and we all we all just stood there in astonishment and then an Egyptologist who was working with the curators at the museum she she suddenly exclaimed look there's a bead and she was right there was a small faience sort of an early glass bluey green glass bead sitting on the top and then she said, there's another one, and there's another one. And it turned out that once we did the count, there was over 100 of these beads scattered just on the top. And what, what we found out much, much later was that there was actually over 8,000 of these beads mixed up with all these, bead, all these bandages and bones. So what we then did after taking some photographs was put the lid back on the coffin and not touch a thing because we really needed to work out what we should do. Should we just leave her there? These are the remains of a person, after all. Who are we to disturb them? So should we leave her there? Should we do something to the remains? Should we record the remains? Should we preserve them? We didn't know at that point, and we really needed to make that decision, uh, take it very seriously and make it uh, very conscientiously before we judged our next move. I want to ask you just a little bit about the fact that the remains uh, who knows when, uh, were desecrated. And in a way, there's part of me that cringes to think of grave robbers that are looting for whatever precious gems or, or uh, artwork they might find that they could sell. Uh, I, I kind of hate that story. But it's part of the story too. And I'm wondering if in your archaeological analysis, you're trying to tell that tale as well as the ancient one, the more ancient one. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, and I think on any any object or any uh, features of human remains that we have in a museum, I mean, there's so many different stories that you that as a curator you need to access and ask. And in this case, the coffin and its contents, um, what has happened to them since the moment they were interred in the tomb back in the 26th dynasty right up until now, the moment that they were opened in Sydney on the other side of the world, two and a half thousand years later. Well, that's quite an extraordinary story as well. Um, and so there's a whole journey there to talk about. And well, one of the, one of the reasons um, that this, this assemblage of bones and bandages is really quite important is because those sorts of things aren't kept well, traditionally at least, haven't been kept by museums, certainly not museums in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Normally that would get chucked out or removed from the coffin in order to find objects for display or to make the coffin more presentable. But I think it goes back to Charles Nicholson collecting this coffin for study, for research, for students, 
that kind of kept it apart from that process. And so it preserved it. And so there are very few museums in the world who are confronted by this sort of situation simply because it doesn't really preserve much, let alone in Egypt or modern museums. And so that story of tomb robbing is a very powerful story that we can tell from this sort of these sort of desecrated remains. So one of the things we wanted to do was capture what those remains looked like before we touched a single bone or bandage or bead so that that story could be represented as well. That was an excerpt of a conversation I had with Jamie Fraser, who currently serves as a curator for the ancient Levant and Anatolia at the British Museum in London. Having had a chance to speak with him, I just can't help but reflect on this notion that if you go down to Egypt, you know, maybe you're with Napoleon's folks, or maybe you're with the Romans going down, I don't care when it is, ancient times, modern times, but you go down there to retrieve stuff. I think they call it looting. If you remove materials, a mummy, a sarcophagus, uh, any papyrus, I suppose, uh, an obelisk, something that big, and you take it somewhere else, Well, you just might want to know what you're signing up for long term because in order to preserve that, in the interest of historic preservation, you have to think about the new climate that you're taking it to. All kinds of problems come up. Egypt is a dry, dry place, and those artifacts from ancient times have survived over the eons. Take it to a place like England, to Paris, to Berlin, to New York, and you're going to have all kinds of mosses and molds and fungus and who knows what's going to grow on it in a humid condition. I'm just saying, you might not want to do that kind of thing. What am I even saying? It hasn't been done for a very long time anyway. That's tightly regulated these days. So my advice is is (laughs) kind of useless, but hey, that's not a first for me either. I have enjoyed being with you today and hope you can be with us again for more Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. about our show and other great listening experiences from BYU Radio, go ahead and download the BYU Radio app. It's absolutely free and very easy to use. Here at Constant Wonder, our aim is to enrich your life with stories that truly exhibit not just the spirit, but also what I would call the habit of awe and wonder and wondering with all the gratitude that these may bring. Take time for wonder and pass along good stories to us anytime. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is constantwonder at byu.edu.